This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde considers what the revelations in Prince Harry's memoir ultimately say about us as a nation. 80s movie icon Kathleen Turner on chronic illness, falling for Michael Douglas and still raging against injustice. And Chloe Hamilton describes navigating the heartbreak of fertility, shoulder to shoulder with her twin sister. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Prince Harry's book is finally out, and as the royal gone AWOL speaks his truth, Marina Hyde is compelled to point out, it's not just the royal family's reputation that's taking a beating on the world stage. Read by Serena Manteghi. Day 127 of J. Crew Hamlet and Prince Harry's memoir has finally dropped. It needed to. I feel like I've had babies I've been less organised for than this particular arrival. There have, it is fair to say, been one or two thousand pre-publication spoilers for Spare, each of which a lot of people have consumed without really meaning to. There's something about it having all taken place over the turn of the year that reminds you of eating nothing but Christmas food for days and days and days. After about a week of it, you do find yourself screaming, I never want to see this stuff again. Can we please, please have a Chinese or a curry? That said, I do still have one box of mince pies and one royal tell-all left. And I think we both know I'm going to get through them. It's called duty. Look it up. Anyway, on to the reaction. As I type this, Harry's entire home of Montecito is under evacuation amid floods some will no doubt choose to see as biblical. We can only guess how the book has gone down in Windsor Elsinore. Some judge that Harry has opened a hail of literary gunfire on a royal family whose courtiers constantly emphasise are limited in the ways they can fight back. Maybe this is a metaphor. 
As one of the more eye-catching passages of Prince Harry's book reveals, during the conflict in Afghanistan, he killed 25 Taliban fighters out of his $50 million helicopter, a form of warfare which even the most committed Taliban loathers among us always had to admit was a bit asymmetric. Then again, the Taliban won in the end, so we should certainly consider the possibility that the monarchy will be the last one standing in the rubble when Harry's barrage ends. But will it ever end? Hard to say. Marvel franchise-wise, we could be in only phase two of Harry and Meghan. The banter option would obviously be for all four Windsors ahead of the Duke of Sussex in the line of succession to now abdicate en masse, leaving a note for King Harry and Queen Meghan reading, Fine, you two do it. Enjoy! Failing that, perhaps Prince Edward could lighten the national mood by staging It's a Royal Knockout 2, the hotly anticipated sequel to his own accidental attempt to kill the franchise in 1987. As for Harry's book itself, it's something of a prince's egg. The genuine, heart-rending pain and isolation of this bereaved child is mixed in with bonk-buster scenery-chewing, hammy woo-woo and palace quarters one downmanship, so much so that it starts to feel like Harry and his ghostwriter have invented an entirely new genre, tragic camp. One minute you're reading some more unspeakably sad evidence of the needless damage done to a troubled child. The next, you're doing an ironic deep dive into the circumcision slash frostbitten penis status of princes that might as well have been subheaded, it's a royal cockout. Fair play to the ghostwriter though who's done the best job of tarting up the prince's output since the art teacher who said she had written his A-level coursework for him. I think he got a B, which feels about right here too. The general vibe is succession, but during a writer's strike. It must be said there are top notes of Paul Burrell at times. However, the comparison might anger Harry, who uses one bit of spare to recall how appalled he was by Burrell's own memoir of Life with the Royals. Just assume that only princes are allowed to write books when they've been through a big experience not servants. In terms of the vast retinue of interested parties that form the royal money-making ecosystem, spare a cackle for Netflix, who somehow paid a reported $100 million to the Sussexes and ended up with a rather boring documentary series while CBS and Oprah scooped the landmark interview in 2021 and Penguin Random House have taken the motherload with this book. Elsewhere, a huge number of bandwagon jumpers have used the opportunity to chime splashily in, ranging from Caroline Flack's publicist to so-called pet dick Penn Farthing, who says he had to evacuate from Kabul after Harry's Taliban-killing revelations dropped. How many times can this guy evacuate from Kabul? I hope he gets air miles. Or consider instead the BBC royal veteran Nicholas Witchell. Witchell is arguably the second most damaged creature of all, 
openly detested by the family whose lives he so obsequiously covers, even now he seemingly regards it as his duty to tour various studios and grimace about the disservice done to a king who is literally on camera saying of him, I can't bear that man, he's so awful he really is. And don't forget the gazillions of readers in all of this, who either love it or love to hate it. Above all, they do read it. The Harry stories have topped the ratings on the Guardian website all week. To say nothing of the rest of the press, which has taken both a kicking and countless millions from the past week's Sparefest. I didn't care for Rupert Murdoch's politics, Harry writes at one point in Spare, which were just to the right of the Taliban. I think Murdoch owns a lot more helicopters than the Taliban, both real and metaphorical, so that particular chess piece is likely to stay on the board. In the end, though, people have decided what Harry's book says about him one way or another. But the bigger, unanswered question after this latest tide of revelations is surely, what does it say about us? What does it say about Britain that this fractured and pain-ridden lot are our first family? On an immediate level, the past week has presented as yet another way for the UK to look mad, weird and chaotic on the world stage. Yet discounting the minority of Republicans, British public opinion appears to have divided the king and queen consort and his sons and their wives into two categories. Obviously tortured and damaged and miserable, but enduring it for their whole lives out of duty. Good. And obviously tortured and damaged and miserable, but saying so out loud and at length. Bad. What a sad state of affairs that all seems. Though it's always amusing to read frothing online comments from people whose personal understanding of duty extends to the tax on booze. Above all, this epical saga reminds us that there is more than one way to look at that chilling term for the monarchy, the institution. We might pity the institution's inmates and escapees, or be horrified by them, or turn a blind eye to the inherent coldnesses and cruelties of their existence. But we are, at the dawn of 2023, part of the society where the majority thinks that it's probably the best place for them. That was It's Prince Harry in One Flew Over the Windsor's Nest Just Pity Those He Left Behind by Marina Hyde Read by Serena Mantegi Next, Body Heat to make Kathleen Turner a star in the 80s. Then, after a string of hit movies, illness forced her to take a step back. Here, the actor talks to journalist Anne Lee about her fight with directors, her rage at white male privilege, and her return to the screen as a foul-mouthed political lobbyist in the brand new drama, White House Plumbers, read by Sue Ann Braun. Kathleen Turner is pondering her acting career, a smile playing on her lips. I'm becoming legendary which I think only means that I've been around that long. She purrs regally. It is, after all, more than 40 years since Lawrence Kasdan's erotic thriller Body Heat turned her into one of Hollywood's most in-demand stars. 
Now, at 68, she's coming to TV screens with White House plumbers, playing Dita Beard, a foul-mouthed lobbyist involved in the Watergate scandal that ruined President Richard Nixon in the early 1970s. HBO's new political drama revolves around E. Howard Hunt, played by Woody Harrelson, and G. Gordon Liddy, played by Justin Theroux, two members of a covert White House Special Investigations Unit. They were supposed to protect the presidency, but they ended up bringing it down. Beard is a true survivor, says Turner, video calling from her home in New York. She was the one that blew the whole damn thing open and then tried the most fantastical ways to get around it. These included faking heart attacks. She's the only one who ended up well, with a horse farm in Virginia, where she lived happily ever after with her daughter, as opposed to everyone else, who pretty much ended up in jail. While Watergate dominated politics 50 years ago, Turner describes the show as very pertinent to what's happening today. I'm always intrigued by this political stupidity, which has been going on for years, that you can say something and it can be a flat-out lie, yet you expect people to believe it. It's just extraordinary to me. I mean, this whole Trump business with the endless consistently disproven lies, it's just fascinating. Who thinks like this? On screen, Turner is magnetic, fierce, bold, and sultry, with an impeccable sense of comic timing to match that oh-so-husky and commanding voice. There is nothing more satisfying than watching her deliver a killer one-liner. As mysterious Maddie in 1981's Body Heat, she was powerfully seductive, coolly flirting with William Hurt by telling him, You're not too smart, are you? I like that in a man. It was her first film role after a stint on the schlocky soap opera The Doctors made her a sex symbol overnight. She followed this up by poking fun at the femme fatale trope in the wacky comedy The Man with Two Brains opposite Steve Martin. A few years later, she would parody it again by voicing Jessica in the animated whodunit Who Framed Roger Rabbit? From the start, Turner has tried her hardest to avoid being typecast. She leapt from playing a mousy novelist in 1984's Romancing the Stone to a prim fashion designer, moonlighting as a sex worker in Crimes of Passion, and then a time-hopping housewife in Peggy Sue Got Married, which earned her an Oscar nomination. Is there a common thread that ties her roles together? It's rage, she says. I was so angry at the shit that goes down, the white male privilege crap. Disgust laces each word. Somebody sent me an interview that I did 35 years ago. Everything I said in that about equal pay, protecting women's rights and health, I'm still saying today. So one can get discouraged. Turner has always stood up for herself, channeling her rage into action. She hated the script for Romancing the Stone's sequel, The Jewel of the Nile, and tried to get out of making it. She was threatened with a $25 million lawsuit, but eventually came to a compromise with co-star and producer Michael Douglas. She dug her heels in, too, when director Ken Russell asked her to do a nude scene in Crimes of Passion. I learned very early that I had to have script approval, she says. They couldn't make changes without consulting me. 
I learned that my first time in Los Angeles doing a screen test. The script they gave me in New York was not the script they gave me in L.A. It was a women's mud wrestling film. We had to put on bikinis and get sprayed with oil. So I went to the bathroom, got a roll of toilet paper, slapped it on my shoulder and hip, and wrote Miss Missouri across it. She lets out a cackle of pure glee. I got out of the audition. But speaking up earned her a reputation for being difficult. Is there any truth to it? Being decisive, knowing what I want, is too much of a male characteristic. So therefore, I must be difficult, she says. Listen, if you talk to anyone who's actually worked with me, you'll never hear that. Turner's parents didn't approve of her choice of career. The third of four children, she was born Mary Kathleen Turner in Springfield, Missouri, to a mother and father who both worked in the U.S. Foreign Service. They lived in Cuba and Venezuela before moving to Britain when she was a teenager. There, Turner started acting while studying at the American School in London. One week before she graduated, her father died of a coronary thrombosis. He was, she says, an extremely disciplined, in some ways rigid man. He had no idea what acting was. He equated it with being a streetwalker. She studied theater at Southwest Missouri State University and the University of Maryland, moving to New York in 1977. When she started auditioning for commercials, Turner realized her distinctive voice set her apart. Right away, they told me that I would have trouble getting a job because of my voice. Well, I wouldn't trade it for the world. You kidding? I love it. In her 2008 memoir, Send Yourself Roses, My Life, Loves, and Leading Roles, Turner writes about making her voice even deeper. How did she do that? Exercise, run the scales, push it lower and lower. It's a muscle. Some of Turner's most memorable roles have been alongside Douglas in Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile, fun Indiana Jones-style action-adventures, and The War of the Roses, a devilishly spiky black comedy about feuding exes. Their chemistry on and off the screen was electrifying. While on location in Mexico for Romancing the Stone, it threatened to spill into real life. Turner was single, while Douglas was separated from his first wife, Deandra Luker. I think we might have been falling in love, says Turner. But then Deandra flew down and made it clear that she did not consider Michael to be available. So that ended that because I can't get involved with another woman's relationship. But oh my, that attention is delicious. How close did she get to dating Douglas? None of your business, she drawls. As the shoot came to an end, she met Jay Weiss, a property developer, and married him in 1984. The couple, who divorced in 2007, have a daughter, Rachel, a singer-songwriter. Turner reunited with Douglas as the ex-wife of his acting coach on Netflix comedy series The Kaminsky Method, which ended in 2021. He's such a good friend. It made it very easy to play ex-husband and wife. In a funny way, we were. Not that I ever married the man. Never would have, never could have. After a string of box office hits in the 80s, Turner was flying high and having a ball. 
But then, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, an autoimmune disease that affects the joints and organs. She was filming the black comedy Serial Mom in 1993 when she realized her feet were so swollen that she couldn't fit into any of her shoes. Soon, the illness became completely debilitating. I couldn't walk. I couldn't hold a glass. The only way I could go up and down the stairs was on my butt, pushing myself. The pain is very bad because there is no way you can sit, lie, or stand that allows you to escape it. People don't understand because it's not life-threatening. It will not kill me, but it kills your life. She started avoiding lead parts, plumping for smaller, less demanding roles. Did her illness derail her career? Yeah, but I wouldn't accept it. I am a very stubborn woman. I got back to full strength, as full as I would ever be again. They told me I would be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Now that was almost 30 years ago. And I look at what I've done in 30 years and I think, well, go to hell. The steroids and pain medication she took to treat the disease made her gain weight, and certain corners of the press would savagely pick apart her appearance. Rumors spread that she had a drinking problem. Turner says she felt complete betrayal, but refused to publicly disclose what was wrong with her. It was self-defense not to discuss this mysterious disease. They would hire drunks or even drug addicts all the time but she was convinced no one would cast her if they knew what was really wrong with her. Better to be quiet and let them think whatever the hell they wanted to. But it hurt a lot. Alcohol eventually became a real problem, however, as Turner drank to ease the pain of her illness, although she was careful never to drink while working. Still, she says, it was incredibly stupid. I had this thing in my head where I thought, I'm not taking pain pills. They are addictive and dangerous. But it was okay to have that second or third vodka. Until she had a sudden burst of clarity. I thought, I'm wasting my entire day with my daughter, with my husband, because I'd close myself down and drink. She checked into rehab in 2002, where she recalls meeting fellow patients, former doctors and nurses, who told her they had killed somebody because of their inattention. I couldn't see that in myself at all. I thought, okay, it's not me. I am not an alcoholic, but I am an abuser of drink. So I stopped drinking for a couple of years. Nowadays, she has a cocktail when she feels like it. I don't imagine I'll ever drink like that again. But then I don't have that amount of pain either. Turner is now in remission for rheumatoid arthritis, although she still has flare-ups. She has worked steadily over the years, gravitating to theater, where there are better roles for older women. When she was 46, she played Mrs. Robinson in a West End production of The Graduate, stripping off every night on stage. She even created her own one-woman cabaret show, Finding My Voice. There have also been appearances as an overprotective mother in the film The Virgin Suicides, and a sexually voracious talent agent in the TV comedy Californication. Fans of the sitcom Friends will remember her from 2001 as Chandler's parent Charles, who performed as drag queen Helena Handbasket. The show's co-creator, Marta Kaufman, confirmed last year that the character was a trans woman, 
although other characters refer to her as Chandler's father. There was no question of casting a trans person or a drag queen. It was never considered, says Turner. It never crossed my mind that I was taking a role from someone. Would she say yes if she was offered it today? Probably not. But I certainly don't regret having taken it. It was a challenge. When she's not filming, Turner teaches acting at various universities in the U.S. She reads endlessly and likes to hold poker nights with her female friends, where they eat sushi and drink bourbon. I don't lack interests, she says. I would like to be more active physically, but at the moment, I'm having a bad flare-up. Turner once said that turning 60 freaked her out. Now that she's approaching her 70s, how does she feel? I talked to Maggie Smith about that. Adopting an impeccable English accent, she mimics the 88-year-old British star. She said, Darling, every age just seems so young now. And you think, okay, she's done some of her best work in later years. She sounds inspired, and then suddenly pensive. Part of me goes, Jesus, do I get to stop working at some point? On the other hand, I can't imagine not working. So, there you go. That was I'll Never Drink Like That Again. Kathleen Turner on booze, health, and falling in love with Michael Douglas by Anne Lee. Read by Sue Ann Braun. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, as identical twins, Lydia and Chloe Hamilton shared everything. But when Lydia had her second miscarriage a few days before Chloe gave birth, it would test their bond to the limit. Here, Chloe shares an intimate account of their journey. Read by Serena Mantegi. A word of warning, Chloe talks in depth about miscarriages, which some listeners might find upsetting. I was days away from giving birth and was discussing pain relief with my NCT friends when the WhatsApp message came through from my twin sister. No baby. To the point, no frills, just like her. The message, a punch to the stomach, 
was followed by a sad face emoji that seemed both insufficient at conveying the agony felt by its sender and utterly devastating in its everydayness. My extremities went tingly, then numb, and suddenly I felt oddly hollow and weightless, as though someone had scooped out my insides and replaced them with helium. And then, another punch to the stomach, a real one this time. My unborn son reminding me that I wasn't in fact hollow or indeed full of helium. I was full of baby. And my sister, my other half, my womb mate, was not. It is a myth, I'm sorry to say, that twins are psychic, although it's one my identical twin sister Lydia and I often played up to at parties by agreeing answers to set questions. She was always thinking of a triangle, I was always thinking of the colour blue. But when she messaged me just after lunch one Friday at the beginning of February 2021, asking if I was free to chat, I knew she was going to tell me she was pregnant. Perhaps it was twin instinct, or perhaps it was simply because my partner and I had that weekend been discussing our own plans to start a family. But I was right. She was. Jealousy is a natural human emotion, but it is, I suspect, one that is felt more acutely between twins. Lydia and I had, have, still, I think, a crippling desire for fairness. When we were tiny, we would eat hula hoops in step, one at a time, just to make sure we had an equal number. So it's little wonder that when Lydia's news broke, I was as envious as I was delighted. With just two pink lines on a stick, my sister was sucked into a world of hospital appointments, scans and baby names, while I was still scrabbling around with cycle lengths, basal body temperatures and figuring out when the hell I was going to ovulate. It wasn't fair. Eight days later, Lydia sent me a voice note. She was anxious. You could hear it in her tone. The clear blue digital test she'd taken that morning hadn't shown the correct number of weeks, and the pink dye on a second test seemed duller than the one she'd taken a few days before. She'd googled, checked the forums, and suspected that her pregnancy was slipping away. She had a blood test that day. It was inconclusive. And then, the next day, Valentine's Day, another pregnancy test came back fainter than faint. I think I'm about to miscarry, she messaged. I'm so heartbroken. If jealousy is felt acutely between twins, then so too is grief. Separated, as we were, by lockdown rules, we communicated over WhatsApp that day. I, rather helplessly, suggested podcasts that might distract her, and she sent me photos of her dog next to her on the sofa. The next day, early, another message came through. I've started to bleed this morning. And so Lydia lost her first baby. Today, reading back through the messages we sent at the time, I realised that on top of the tragedy, the everyday business of being a twin continued. In the days that followed, celebrity gossip was exchanged, opinions on house renovations sought, work dilemmas shared. 
Our closest friend had her baby, and we discussed that at length. I'd guessed she'd call him that, did you? We talked about how funny her dog looked in his cone after an operation. We planned a house move for my partner and me. The move to our new house, our first home together, is significant, because it was when my partner and I had always planned to start trying for a baby. The house together represented stability, security and, in lieu of a wedding cancelled due to Covid, a certain commitment to one another. Except our move came just two days after Lydia started miscarrying. I was due to ovulate the following week and my twin, the closest person to me, my flesh and blood, was still actively losing her baby. While I was dutifully weeing on ovulation sticks each afternoon, her partner was accompanying her each time she visited the bathroom, sitting with her, his hand in hers while she wiped away the blood. I had to ask. Did she want us to wait? We could, I told her. Still separated by lockdown restrictions, we WhatsApped. I want to say yes, but is that bad? She wrote. I don't and shouldn't have control over what you do, and that isn't fair. I don't want to be that sort of sister. Of course, neither of us knew how long it would take me to get pregnant, or how long it would take her. We opted to see how things panned out. Three weeks later, I took a pregnancy test. There was a whisper of a line. Nothing concrete enough to tell my partner, who I suspected would need the news in black and white. I sat on it until lunchtime when Lydia sent me a message. How many days past ovulation are you? I told her. Told her too about the whisper. She asked to see a picture. We both agreed there was something there, but neither of us could be sure. That night I took another test, and the whisper increased by a decibel. I feel sad, Lydia told me, and I stressed that that was okay, that I didn't expect her to be giddy with excitement. Then, the following morning, another pregnancy test. And there it was. The whisper suddenly a shout. Two clear streaks of pink confirmed what, really, I already knew. OMG, huge congratulations, came Lydia's message within minutes, the six exclamation marks working hard to conceal the pain I knew she was feeling. But then, later, she sent a voice note. I feel, she said, somehow both cheerful and stoic, like my baby has just switched wombs. To say my pregnancy wasn't affected by my sister's miscarriage would be a lie. I was anxious. My worries fueled, I'm sure, by Lydia's loss. I analysed every cramp, every twinge, every new sensation... I expected to see blood every time I went to the toilet, and I took pregnancy tests obsessively, different brands, different times of day. I didn't throw any away, as if, in disposing of the evidence, I would tempt fate into disposing of the pregnancy itself. But, as the anxiety receded, and the scans provided more and more reassurance, it became apparent that it had been masking something more pervasive a guilt that bit into my very core. That I was the one who was pregnant and not Lydia. 
that I dared feel anxious when surely I should only feel joy. We discussed my pregnancy. We couldn't not. But always on the understanding that if Lydia wanted to step back, she could. And sometimes she did. Ducking out of group WhatsApps, or quietly disappearing to make cups of tea whenever the conversation came round to the baby. A baby I can now admit I found it hard to connect with. The intense guilt of his existence, healthy, strong, growing, overriding the love I should, surely, have felt. On the due date of Lydia's lost baby, we lit candles, and the next day, she got a positive pregnancy test. She sent me a photo of it. A digital test this time, with the magic word displayed almost nonchalantly on the tiny screen. Pregnant. I was fast approaching my due date by this point, and grossly, heavily uncomfortable. But suddenly, I felt a weight lifted. The guilt receding. For the first time, pregnancy was a shared experience. Me with my watermelon, Lydia with her sesame seed. In the days after her positive test, Lydia wasn't as anxious as you might imagine. She flitted between acknowledging that the worst could happen, I've been through the shit, if it happens again I know how to manage it, and getting excited about her baby. Should we talk about names? We discussed due dates, scans, and the best pregnancy vitamins to take. Initially, at least, we felt untouchable and, thus allowed ourselves to tempt fate. I don't know why, but I feel like things will be okay, I messaged a few days after the test. It feels right that this is your time. We gloried in the hope of it all. The bleeding was faint at first. Barely there. All normal, Lydia was told. Nothing to worry about. But, of course, we did. She booked an early scan for two weeks' time, and then, as quickly as it had come, the bleeding went, and we steadied ourselves. Still, our conversations changed. Lydia's voice notes were now imbued with a sense of unease, of encroaching dread. She still sent photos of her bloating stomach. I guess it's a good sign but these were now accompanied by screenshots from a website that calculated her chance of miscarriage each day. I just can't visualise good news, she told me the night before her scan. And then, an hour later, had some more bleeding this evening. When Lydia woke the following morning, the day of her scan, she was bleeding dark red blood. I really think it's over she messaged as she waited for her appointment. I still want to go to the scan. Even if it's to say goodbye. I remember instinctively resting my hand on my stomach, trying to locate the steady kick, kick, kick of my baby's feet. That day I met my NCT friends, drank coffee, ate cake, still hoping, and I think believing there would be good news. But when my phone buzzed two hours later and my hand went again to my bump, I think I knew. I opened the message. No baby, it read. 
It is excruciating to witness someone else's grief and know you're about to make it worse, about to pour salt into their open, weeping wound. When Lydia had her first miscarriage, I had asked her if she wanted me to wait before trying for a baby. This time I had no such option. My baby was due. I was a careering train with no brakes. That afternoon, while Lydia went to hospital for a checkup, I returned home and lay on the sofa, paralysed by a visceral cocktail of grief and terror. As darkness crept across my living room floor, I didn't get up to switch on the light, choosing instead to lie in the pitch black, hands on my stomach, noting my baby's movements and saying to him over and over, not yet, please don't come yet, we need more time. I wanted to see my sister straight away, but I was also terrified that my very physicality, the protruding balloon of my stomach would be agony for her. When I did see her the next day, I tried to cover myself, layering jumpers, coats and scarves so as to hide my bump. But of course, when I hugged her, there was no hiding the expanse between us. The next nine days before my son arrived an hour blur. It's only by combing through the WhatsApp messages we sent each other at the time that I see how tortured we both were. Me trying not to draw attention to the fact that I was about to have my first baby and Lydia grieving the loss of her second. Three days before my son was born, I messaged her to say that if she didn't feel able to visit when he arrived, I would understand and, crucially, that her nephew would know how loved he was by his auntie, regardless of whether she was present. It was during one of these conversations that I realised Lydia wasn't just grieving the loss of her babies. She was also, in a way, grieving the loss of her twin. In her eyes, I was embarking on a new adventure, sailing into the unknown to a place where she couldn't join me. I arrived at this new place in mid-November 2021, when Fabian came, calmly, into the world after a 19-hour labour. Lydia, who, due to Covid restrictions, had been by my side via WhatsApp for the birth, messaged me minutes after he arrived. I didn't think it was possible to love you any more, but I'm bursting. I had sent a photo of my son, tiny and red to the family group and, quick as a flash, my mum responded, he looks very like Lydia when she was born. And he did. I don't know why it was such a surprise that my baby looked so much like my twin, but it was remarkable. He had her round face and saucer-like eyes. I'm sure I wasn't the only one to wonder in that moment whether the baby that should have been a month old and in my sister's arms would have looked anything like the baby that was a minute old and in mine. We had to stay in hospital for a few days while Fabian recovered from an infection, but Lydia, still bleeding, visited us, bringing food, clean clothes, tiny sleep suits. She has since told me that those days were the hardest. I needed you so badly... And before I met Fabian, I was so angry that he got you.
One day, leaving my son with his father, I escaped the stuffy ward and Lydia and I sat in Costa on the hospital concourse. Other patients and visitors went about their days as though nothing remarkable had happened. But for us, there had been a shift in the tectonic plates of our twinship. We had both undergone metamorphoses, had been reborn mothers, but while I had emerged babe in arms, she had not. We were, for the first time in our lives, separated, starkly, by our lived experiences. This separation was made physical when I returned to the ward after our coffee. Covid restrictions meant Lydia couldn't come in. Instead, she met her nephew through glass, gazing at him, now safely returned to my arms through the window isolating the ward from the real world. Back in my hospital bed, apart from my twin, I was tormented by the same grief and guilt that had hounded my pregnancy. Whenever I picked Fabian up, smelled him, held him to my breast to feed, I felt Lydia's losses keenly, and I cried often. Five days later, we were able to leave, and the next day, Lydia visited, the first of our friends and family to do so. Without a thought, I handed Fabian over, releasing him for the first time into arms that were not his father's or a medical professional's, and he nestled into her, gazing up at this new but familiar person with his hand on his chin as though deep in thought. And then, completely at ease in the cradle hold of my twin, he sighed contentedly, closed his eyes and fell asleep. I could write reams about Lydia's relationship with my son, her baby who switched wombs. Fourteen months on, he still looks like her, right down to the way they both scrunch their noses when they smile. He has her temperament as well. Happy-go-lucky, curious, kind, cheeky. Mostly, though, I'm in awe of how she loves him. At every turn, she has not just tolerated me having a baby when she does not, but has embraced it. When I asked her how she felt about him for this piece, she said, I feel like he's part of me. I'd fight to the death for him. She sees him often, usually at her request. If she's away, she will FaceTime him and he will beam gorgeously at his auntie on the screen. The trimmings of motherhood, the baby classes I go to, the joy of breastfeeding, the firm friends I've made, Lydia still finds difficult. But the baby himself? No, she says. That bit is remarkably easy. Her miscarriages bookended my pregnancy. It's not fair. We acknowledge that often. And while there is much I want to teach Fabian as he grows, to value friendship, to embrace silliness, to be kind... Perhaps the most important thing I want him to know is that he exists in large part because of his auntie's strength of spirit and unceasing selflessness. If we'd waited, if she'd asked us to, we wouldn't have conceived him. Our sweet, happy boy made so curiously in her image. 
It's why, sometimes, on a difficult evening, when Fabian has only just fallen asleep after two hours of crying and is pressing his body so close to mine that I am teetering on the edge of our bed, tangling with insomnia and trying to accept that sleep may not come for me tonight. I lean in to smell his milky breath, brush my lips gently across his warm cheeks and whisper as quietly as I can, Thank you, thank you, thank you, Auntie Lydia. That was I Had a Baby Just As My Twin Sister Lost Hers Would Our Relationship Ever Be The Same by Chloe Hamilton Read by Serena Mantegi If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece we've included details of a helpline you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com That's all from us This has been Weekend A Guardian podcast If you're enjoying it please make sure to like, subscribe to, and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Serena Mantegi and Sue Ann Braun and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producers were Danielle Stevens and Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.